When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, my guest is Renee Moborn, a prominent figure in the world of business and strategy. She is an INSEAD Distinguished Fellow and a Professor of Strategy at INSEAD, one of the world's leading business schools. She is also the co-director of the INSEAD Blue Ocean Strategy Institute, a center dedicated to exploring and promoting innovative strategies that create uncontested market spaces. Her collaboration with W. Chan Kim has resulted in numerous best-selling articles in publications like the Harvard Business Review, the Wall Street Journal, and the Financial Times. Their most notable work, The Blue Ocean Strategy, published in 2005, has become an international sensation, selling over 2 million copies and being translated into 42 languages. Her influence and expertise have earned her accolades, including being recognized as one of the world's top management gurus and winning prestigious awards for her contributions to the fields of international business and strategic thinking. Welcome to Success Story. I'm your host, Scott Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. For everyone listening, I just have to ask you a question. Do you want to know what separates the contenders from the pretenders, the A-list from the C-list, world champions from the world not champions? It's pretty simple. The fourth quarter in sports, more importantly for a lot of the people listening here in business, finishing strong is key. Now, HubSpot's new sales hub is the software that you need for your sales and your sales team to win Q4. You could be a solopreneur. You could own and run a larger business. Regardless, if you are selling anything to anyone, which I think a lot of the people who are listening to this are, you need to check out Sales Hub. So there is a new prospecting workspace. There's revamped deal management tools. There's smart sequencing. Sales Hub is loaded with everything you need to turn leads into prospects and then convert those prospects into customers. With Sales Hub, you have the right information at the right time to build better relationships, which means closing deals has never been easier. So this Q4, give yourself and your team the tools to win big with HubSpot Sales Hub. Learn more at HubSpot.com slash sales. So I remember my father when I was very little, um, talking and he just looked at me and he said, uh, Renee, no matter what, but never, but never, but never give up. Even when you face struggles or difficulties, you keep on going. And I think that has really made me never want to give up because in any journey in life, there are difficulties, there are challenges. And when I face them, yes, you take a punch, you might shed a tear, but I always remember, but never give up. There's always a way forward. Start looking for that now. So that would be it. Why was that such an important lesson for him? I think he was in the Marines. And that was drilled down into him in the Marines. As the Marines, you never give up. That's yeah. it. You march forward. I love that. And and like growing up. So let's talk about, you know, your early career and and what because a lot of the work that you do 
has focused on researching things that no one has really, it's almost like a contrarian view on a topic. So the way that you first researched the blue ocean, I find that to be very contrarian, even though now it's very normalized. And, and even what you're working with now, how we relook and reinterpret disruption. Again, a very contrarian view on what disruption is and what it isn't. So how does one's career allow them to, without, without sounding too cliche, go into a blue ocean in terms of, of a thought that has never existed before, research that thought, think through the implications on an industry, and then properly formulate something that resonates so deeply with somebody where before your research, there wasn't a concept like that? So, you know, um, I don't think I have a, or we have a really neat, tidy answer for you on that. Um, but, you know, like when we were in Michigan uh, in the 1980s, myself and my colleague, Chan Kim, um, everyone in business school was teaching about how to compete. And that was the time in America where, you know, for the first time in our history, Industry after industry was getting devastated by a new set of global challengers. And at the time, it was the Japanese. It was earth moving equipment was devastated, consumer electronics, textiles. And being in Michigan and Ann Arbor, we saw the auto capital of America absolutely devastated. I mean, Detroit was a, was a ghost town when we went in there. And so we thought, you know, what's the cause of all these problems? And it was too much competition. And yet that was exactly what we were teaching was how to compete. So we said, is that the best way? And if you read the journals at the time, everyone was talking about how we need to learn to compete in order to survive. And we were young and we thought, we don't want to survive. We want to thrive. And are there other organizations that in spite of the competition are finding an alternative path to grow, to create new opportunities and to thrive? And we started to search them out and we found out, yeah, there were, and they were not stuck in what we call these existing industries, which we labeled the red oceans at the time, mm -hmm. because they were bloody red with a lot of competition, um, more competition, more supply than demand. And so it was tough. And we saw people being let out of work. That was when the rust belt of America was being built. And then we saw all these other companies creating, and we call those blue oceans because you could unlock them. So I guess if I think about, you know, we just became observers of life. And instead of only listening to what the media told us, we have to compete. This is the way. We looked at what are the implications and what do we see? And we asked ourselves always, was there another way? We don't want to start with what is, but what should be. Mm -hmm. And then how do we construct that? And I think, Scott, to our second book, it's a very similar mindset. And that is that, you know, when Blue Ocean took off, of course, and it did what it did, um, and thank you for acknowledging that, you know, people said, well, if you're creating, you said there's competing and creating. It's, it's counterintuitive, but it is also complementary. One does not displace the other. You need both in life. Like you have to know how to compete. You have to know how to create. Every company does. But at the same time, you know, we started looking at people in innovation space said, well, is it Blue Ocean is creating, so isn't it innovating? And we looked at our data and we said, no, it's not. Disruption is when you create an industry that completely displaces and takes down another. So Netflix comes along and Blockbuster and Eddie V, every video rental store, finished. Yeah. 
On the other hand, Blue Ocean is about looking across industries. So Cirque du Soleil, I take a little of circus, I take a little of theater, I have a disruption at the margin, but I never displace an industry or create new growth. But we started looking, we said, wow, isn't that interesting? As our database had grown, because we're perpetual researchers every day, you know, we saw all these examples of companies that were actually creating outside of existing industries where they had no displacement at all. And so we thought that is interesting. So I can create, not touch even the margins of an industry and create economic and social good. What is that? Why does the field of innovation assume we need to disrupt? And every venture capitalist will tell you, every startup comes to them with plans to take on an existing industry. When there's all this opportunity space where I can also make impact and billion dollar businesses, where I can pursue what we call non-disruptive creation when you create without destroying. And so we said, now that is really interesting. No one's talking about it and we wanna start exploring it. So I think in both cases, it's about, you know, we talk about your agency versus structure in the book. And we say many people lead with structure, meaning we accept the world as it is and we build from that what should be. And really it's about using the power of your own thinking <laughs> to observe the world and see what it is and determine does what you're hearing make sense and what mm. could do better. So I, I guess I, by the way, I love the view. I love the lens at which you look yeah. through the world. And I think the world would candidly across every, every school of thought, every argument, every debate would be a better place if everybody approached them with that mindset. Well, I absolutely you, love but... that. So that would be my beginning thought, you know, on, how we kind of think as as researchers and how we observe why do you think that you just mentioned a very good point the, the I, I have an opinion and i'm curious as to whether or not you think this opinion is valid val, valid excuse me why do you think that venture capitalists always say we have to disrupt it's because and in my opinion it's because the playbook is there and it's it's de-risked to some degree it's 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 still risk but it's it's so i would say the if you're looking at the levels of risk, we have building a product in say a red ocean and doing it slightly better or cheaper, or whatever. That's like the, the, the most, most de-risked opportunity. Then disruption is, at least there's a playbook for disruption because we can look to other people that have done it, but no one's uh, codified the playbook for disruption without displacement. And yeah, so we would actually say it's not a Scott disruption. We, you know, we call it non-disruptive yeah. opportunities and we call it non-disruptive creation because you create without destroying. So we would yes. you know, flip that lens. So we put a new, just as Blue Ocean put a new lens to look at the world and see things, when we start thinking non-disruptive, it just changes where our orientation is and what comes to the foreground of our observation and thought. Um, but to go back to that, I mean, um, Scott, so you, your question is, why do we default to this? Why do we default to to the oh, we so, have to disrupt? Oh, thank you so much. So I think there's, you know, a few issues there. Um, one is, I think it's really startups that go to venture capitalists with disruptive ideas because they've seen the unicorns that have succeeded based on that. In the theory of innovation for what we learn in the top MBA schools, it starts out with creative destruction from this gentleman or economist called Schumpeter. Then there was disruption. We saw disruption with the internet and it became a whole way of looking at the world. So that frames us just the way 
competing framed everyone before Blue Ocean came out. We got pushed back in the beginning and now it's completely accepted. Um, so I think that's one thing, but I think also, and I agree to your point, it looks like, well, when I disrupt, I know there's an established industry and I can take it on. But in some ways, I would argue, you know, the venture capital odds of being successful are not that high when they bet on, you know, many of their investments fail. And think about that, because when you set out to disrupt an existing industry, that existing industry is not going to just sit there and say, welcome to my industry. Please take the bologna off my bread and enjoy the results. (laughs) They are going to sit there and fight you. Right. So it's very interesting. Yes. At the start point, we know the existing industry that looks easier. But then I'm saying, but I'm going to take on all the biggest bullies and the biggest strength there is and watch me knock it down as a startup. That's a lot of bravado, actually, in that. And no doubt some succeed, but not nearly to the extent that we would think that they do. And I would condition that to say that, you know, if to give you know a tip to your, to your viewers who are probably thinking some of them thinking about creating a business. If I see an industry that's really asleep at the wheel. Players in that industry really haven't innovated in a long time. They seem to have poor service. Cost structures are high. That might be an industry I'm going to think about. There's some disruptive opportunity because obviously they're leaving a lot of good things on the table for someone to take. But if I'm looking at an industry that's got you know top players in it that have deep pockets, deep resources, people really love them. They're getting good ratings. Am I going to set out to disrupt that industry? Well... Let me tell you, you can't just be a magnitude of 10% better to displace that industry. You've got to be 50, 60, 70% better. And there's another factor we don't take into account. Forget in disruption, which no one talks about. All the big guys and big players are going to go out that are out to smack you down. Understandably, as you would smack someone down. Mm-hmm. But there's another thing. There's sunk costs involved for buyers. So, you know, solar roofs have been trying desperately to displace traditional roofs on houses for the longest time. And think about it. They promise you to almost reduce your electricity or energy costs to zero. Big plus, right? They allow you to know you're contributing to the environment. Big plus. And in truth, there's some emotional status. Yeah, I'm one of those people that mm-hmm. care. I take action. Yet the penetration is very small. And why? Because the investment in a roof is 20,000, depending on where you are, 20 to 30,000 to redo your roof, depending on the size of your home. It lasts for 20 years. And so once somebody has done that, there's huge sunk costs to change. So there's also the buyer sunk costs. And for me to move from what is to um, to what could be your new disruptive offering, Your magnitude of difference has to be fundamental for me to shift. And I think that a lot of startups aren't calculating that correctly. So what looks like it's de-risked to your point, Mm because I can see it, is actually when you deeply think through it, a lot more risky than we know. So then you say, well, non-disruptive has a different set. We don't have to take on the big players. We don't have to, on the other hand, overcome some costs, but we have a different set of challenges because we need to be able to establish that that demand could be there that isn't there yet and the size of that potential market. And so they have different pros and cons to them, but I would say the ease of disruption has been greatly oversold to people. That's Practically, from a practical standpoint, I think that's actually very fair. And I think that, I think that if I was a founder trying to build something 
and and I and I by the way, I love your model. And I'll tell you why I love your model because this is the second book and and person that has thought through this problem. If you actually look behind me, Play Bigger is about Benioff with Salesforce.com and and IKEA and a very similar mindset. They didn't really disrupt. I mean, they did to a point, but it wasn't displacing. It was creating a category and then selling into that category. And that's, I mean, look look at these companies now, right? That's why they're killing yeah. it. So I think that's, is that, but to, to, to really draw a, a, a vivid picture for people, is that the, the type of company that has done it well, you said Cirque du Soleil, would a Salesforce.com would Cirque du Soleil and Salesforce, those are two companies that are both in what we would call blue ocean. So so let me say there's three paths to creating new markets. Okay. I wanna I wanna One make sure they understand the example of each type of company. Yeah. Yeah, that's great, I think. So there's three different paths to creating a new market. So one is disruption. And that is when I offer a breakthrough solution to an existing market. So I set out to displace and replace it. So Netflix comes, they displace and replace blockbuster videos, right? So that's what I am doing there. Apple comes with the iPhone, they displace all the existing mobile phones. Nokia goes out of business, Sony Ericsson out of business, right? So you have Motorola out of business, Blackberry out of business, and they come in that area. That's disruption. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. I just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Today's show is brought to you by 1Password. Now listen, we all have that one friend who's constantly forgetting passwords and needing help to get into their accounts. I have a solution. It's called 1Password. 1Password 
is the award-winning password manager trusted by millions of users and companies like IBM and Slack to keep logins, credit cards, and other private info safe in an encrypted vault that only you can access. No more sticky notes with passwords or using the same password everywhere. I've been using 1Password for a year now and I can't recommend it enough. It saves me time from having to reset passwords and gives me peace of mind knowing my info is secure. With convenient features like automatic password generation and login autofill, 1Password takes the hassle out of passwords. You can use it on all your devices, iOS, Android, Mac, PC, everything syncs seamlessly. And with top-notch security audits and encryption, your data stays private. So do yourself a favor and check out 1Password today. Go to onepasswordcom Clary and get a two-week free trial. Let 1Password remember all of your logins for you so you can remember what really matters. That's onepasswordcom Clary for two weeks free. Then Blue Ocean is when I create a new market, not within an existing industry, but across industries. So in the case of Cirque du Soleil, I look across theater, I look across um, uh, circus, take a little of both, recombine it in a, in a new way, take a margin of disruption, so non-disruptive growth and a margin of disruption. So it's a balance. And now the third path is non-disruptive creation. And that's when you create a new market outside of industry boundaries. So actually there's no displacement at all. So Understood. if you look at Jim McKelvey and Jack Dorsey, who created the square reader, you know, Jim McKelvey himself has an article that came out on Harvard Business Review that said, great companies don't set out to disrupt. And so what he is looking at is how come micro businesses that need credit cards, the most popular form of payment in America, and individuals like a babysitter who wants to get payment or an ice cream uh, you know, truck that's going around and people don't have cash, but their kid is crying, they wanna give them an ice cream or they want it for themselves. They can use that credit card. And so they created the square reader by using the mobile phone. And now suddenly they opened up this whole new market industry outside of credit cards and payment, didn't infringe on either. By the way, did not have any NCR payment industry going out to attack it. Everyone just let it go because it didn't try to take my bread or butter at all. And it created all new growth. So I guess the three differences, one is disruption is within an existing industry. Blue Ocean is across existing industries mm -hmm. and non-disruptive creation, which is really the opposite end of the innovation spectrum. And that is creating outside of industries. And no one has been talking about that. And we believe it's important because there's no displacement at all. No shuttered companies, lost jobs, hurt communities, a main street that has every single store emptied because Amazon has given us great products, but led to retail being closed everywhere. So, so the follow-up to that is as a founder, say, say I would love to build that. I would love to build a product in that category, but then... You know, I run into the issues. I'm talking to a venture capitalist. I'm talking to an angel. And they're like, what's the TAM? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't know what the TAM is. So how does somebody what think? Sorry, the TAM, the total the total addressable market. What's the market that you're going to sell into when I'm, you're trying yeah. to raise money from an investor? So how do you think through getting a company in, a, in, in, a, in this third lane off the ground? Yeah. So I think the first thing, you know, we give the three building blocks to do it. The first is, you know, you have to identify, there's two ways to identify these non-disruptive opportunities. So, you know, one is an existing problem we've all taken for granted. So, you know, small companies and individuals like a babysitter 
prior to Square Reader, we just took for granted that when you're an individual, you can't accept credit card payments as small business. And that's kind of what stinks about being a small business. You don't get to enjoy those benefits. That's the struggle of a small business until you're a big guy. You don't get to enjoy those benefits. So we just simply accept it until someone says, well, why not? Right. So the square comes out. So that's one path. And the other path is, you know, an emerging um, uh, emerging issue or problem in the world due to, you know, uh, demographics, environment, social chains, new technology. So, you know, like esports, how did that grow? Mm -hmm. You know, they had all these video games that kids uh, and young people and older people are playing all over the world. And they started to observe in the video game industry how many people, especially in Korea, where it's really part of their culture, um, would not play the video games, but sat and started watching them always online. And they had these video game cafes where somebody would be playing and they'd have a crowd around them. And they started to realize, wait a minute, young people don't only want to play the games. There's a whole group of people that want to watch just the way people love watching tennis, even if they don't play, or they love watching football, even if they don't play. And then they started saying, could we not create an opportunity to create esports live event, 50,000 people and bring it together? Now to your point, how do you start to assess the size of that market? Now the next question becomes, well, who cares? The most important question is, so I need to understand the two paths, but then question, who cares besides me? Mm -hmm. Who? Am I the only one or not? So in the case of, if I go back to Square Reader, they said, okay, how many small and mid-sized businesses, what is the size of their transaction volume? They make much smaller transactions, but what is the quantity of them? And then, you know, can we find out how many would find it an annoyance or would be better served if they had credit cards? And then they look for studies that found as well, you know, most people prefer to be able to have the ease of a credit card if they don't have cash. That allowed them to see that on the bottom of the pyramid, while companies were all focused on the big and large companies on the pyramid, which have huge volumes, they found out that all these little tiny volumes could add up to a lot. So the question becomes that, but you can also, and is very important, is find out how can, so we say, who cares besides you? But then the second thing is dream big, but start small. So can I then? for esports start to bring people together and start to have one event and see what kind of a response that I'm getting so that I can have some level of proof for the effectiveness of what I'm doing um, to establish that. So I guess if I were to go to a VC, I'm gonna to go to a VC and say, you know, you hear about disruption. Mm -hmm. I know it sounds good, but let me, but how many of your venture capital projects succeed or fail? They know so many fail. A significant okay. amount. <laughs> a significant amount. And number yeah. two is, you know, we think disruption's easy, but let's talk about what really disruption means. I'm going against big guys. I'm going against Suncos. There's another path, right? So let me talk and name, and I'm now going to name five, six, seven big players that have pursued this, right? It's, they're in our book, but you can just find them. These are all non-disruptive opportunities. Do I take on big players? No, that don't I. Then I'm going to say, what is the problem I'm doing? It should be palpable. Who cares besides me? I'm going to start articulating that. And then what I'd love to have, I say dream big but start small, is proof of where I have, if possible, and usually is possible, run um, experiments. So if I go back to even 3M, when they came out with Post-it notes, mm -hmm. 
the first thing they did before they could start to scale that, because when 3M starts to really move big, you're talking a lot of money. That means a lot of seriousness. The more money, the more people weigh. So they start giving this post-it note to every single secretary, and they find out no matter who they give it to, God, they call and they want more, right? So they start testing. They then interestingly did a first market research study with it, and they didn't get good results. So it goes back to what I said initially, never give up. And they realized was they explained the product, but they didn't let people try the product. So then they went back and they said, let's do a sampling blitz. Let's let people put it in their hands and see how it works. And it starts to take off there, right? So I guess my point is they were looking for, you have to look for proof of how something works or doesn't work in order to be able to show what it is. In the case of Vi Viagra, you know, that drug was initially meant for high blood pressure. And when they talked with the people that were testing the drug, and this unfortunately didn't look like high blood pressure, but they noticed it had this side effect, mm -hmm. which we understand what it was. And the men were smiling. They didn't want to give these pills back. <laughs> and they said, wow, I think we're onto something. And so these are the types of social proofs that when you're saying, so in, Vi in virus case in Pfizer, the case didn't have to be made to a VC. It has to be made to upper management to start yeah. putting money behind it. So then they say, okay, let's put a different study behind it. You know, Because whether it's internal or external, before people put money down, they really want to start to understand the size of the market. So you want to try to de-risk it, but also as much as possible, minimize the resources I put behind before I have that proof. So, you know, so we're you still really have that MVP framework, that, that minimum viable product framework that transcends all startups, no difference there. And that actually allows you to test. Yeah, so you can, that is right. But you can also minimum viable, but you can scope it down. So like microfinance, if we look, that's a, you know, a multi-billion dollar industry helped over 140 million people. Well, when Muhammad Yunus had the idea to start doing that, he saw all the poor people in India, in, in Bangladesh and all. But what he really did initially was he said, no, if I was ever to talk to people about starting this industry and getting financing for this industry, and I said, I want to tackle poverty, which is widespread in all of the people living under $2 a day, the banking industry and my own team will laugh at me. What I'm going to do is scope it down to one town, one village, and I'm going to make these tiny loans and I'm going to see the payback rates. I'm going to see the way it impacts their lives. When I have that, I have something that I can bring of credibility in my team to believe I'm onto something because you want to convince your team they need confidence to move forward. But also when I go to bankers and outsiders with what I have. And so, you know, we try to go into how you know to answer the two questions once you've identified the problem uh so it's an existing problem that's overlooked long taken for granted like if i go back to microfinance whoever if this didn't pop problem didn't pop up it's been here since eternity whoever thought that people many of whom were uh, earning less than two dollars a day many of whom are illiterate can't read a bank document to begin with they won't walk into a bank edifice because they feel intimidated mm -hmm. They have no steady income, if they have income. And on the other hand, they have no collateral and they have nobody that can co-sign for them. Of course, how could banking be for them? Right, we take for granted. But he said, no, 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 no. These people have skills. They know how to survive in poverty. And these people have the same aspiration we have. They want to better their lives. 
And guess what? They don't need tens of thousands of dollars the way people in the wealthy cities do. They need a matter of a few dollars. And so he started to look and reframe that thinking there. His existing problem had long been taken for granted. And to be truthful with you, Scott, they're everywhere. It's like when you don't have the lens to think that way, you don't mm -hmm. realize how many problems are often right in front of us. We just don't see. You know, we start the book off with the case of um, music not impossible and the deaf and hearing. You know, we all assume what a tragedy. Um, and I say that from a hearing perspective, so maybe that's the wrong perspective to say. But let us say what I, most people would commonly say, it's unfortunate to be born without hearing. And we just take for granted that as a result of that, you cannot experience music. It's just part of life. But they said, why is that? Because we don't actually hear with our ears. It's just where vibration enters um, our, our, our human existence, our body. We actually hear with our brain. And if you fall on the street and you hurt your head in a certain way, without even touching your ear, you can lose your hearing. So I said, hmm. can we not find another receptive mechanism to allow vibration to enter our brain so we begin to get the sensation of music? And they found it could be your skin. Were these audiologists or doctors? No, these were just this company called uh, Music. Uh, um, it's called Not Impossible Labs, actually. That's the name of the company. It's, it was called Music Not Impossible because they said, how could we bring music? And so they, you know, used existing technologies, found how through vibration in the skin, they could let that um, enter our body with different frequencies. And so it's like a, a vest you wear um, yeah. if you were surfing. And it was, it's a beautiful, but we took for granted that problem and they set out to solve it. Is that just one? Or like in the case of, um, you know, esports, what are newly emerging aspirations of people, right? Or newly emerging problems that didn't exist two years ago even. And then how do we create these new opportunities? So that's absolutely fascinating. What, what, when you look at this lens, this is the lens in which you view the world now. I hope that people can understand how impactful this is, but speak to me about why this is important for our future. Why is it important for us to look in this way outside of maybe having a slightly easier go at building a company? That's, that's fun. That's nice. That's very, that's not that important. It's important, but it's not as important as where does this take humanity in the future? So I, you know, I think there are several reasons, um, which is why we're so passionate about it. We worked a lot of years on this. Um, you know, so one is, of course, that it allows me to, to achieve. Often we think, you know, in business, you're either a corporate raider. I'm being simplistic. You're yeah. a corporate raider. You're a tree hugger. You know, you either pursue profit and growth or, you know, you're very committed to helping the world. And non-disruptive creation allows us to pursue profit but achieve social good in the very way we earn money not spend money so you know traditionally corporate social responsibility in companies is a cost factor mm -hmm. it's how we spend money not how we make money but with non-disruptive creation i am able to pursue economic growth without causing social harm uh, to the organizations which i think speaks very much to what the younger generations really care about but also it speaks very much to this new movement about how we need to consider not only uh, shareholders, but our broader stakeholders in society. And this is very important. And, you know, 
recently there's been some pushback where people say, oh, you know, you're pushing too hard for stakeholders. And that's because companies are feeling that they have to truncate their profits too much to do this and they're hurting themselves in the process. But, you know, non-disruptive creation, it's a positive sum approach, not zero sum. So that's at one level. And I do believe it's important. If I'm an executive as a company, do if I had two alternatives, one is I can disrupt and displace and destroy an industry, which is macho and good and I make money. On the other hand, I can create a billion dollar business where I don't destroy and take down others. And I care about communities that are around and those employees, because when I disrupt, when you're on the opposite end of disruption, someone's really getting hurt. Of course, uh, I, the whole workforce you know, is wiped out, right? Yeah, yeah just walk down yeah. Madison Avenue in New York and you watch every other store, every three or four stores, they're closed, right? And so it has a tremendous impact on the real estate industry, all the retail employees, but also on our minds, right? It it just creates a sense of, uh, of um, a lack of hope when you see everything getting closed down, right? You need, you need vibrancy and vibrancy in a neighborhood and a community inspires all us to think, fill with hope, imagination for the future. So as a CEO, if I have two opportunities before me, I'm not going to disparage disruption, but I'm going to seriously weigh non-disruption because those ideas and those issues matter. But the second issue very much is what we're talking about every day. And this is an emerging challenge. And that is a fourth industrial revolution. Mm-hmm. So, you know, every day with this chat GBT that came out, everyone's playing with it, trying it. And, you know, every day you'll read articles that uh, estimated 100 million people might lose jobs or whatever. It's always in large numbers and often in the hundreds of millions. Now, we hope that's not the case. And there'll be countervailing people, which will say, well, in most industrial revolutions, there is displacement, but eventually new jobs. And we hope so. You know, we hope that'll be the case. But we believe we should always um, prepare, pre- prepare for the worst and plan for, and hope for the best. Mm-hmm. We need to be preparing for the worst, hoping for the best. And what does that mean is that when this AI, and it, by the way, it's not coming as much for blue collar jobs. Smart machines are coming for more blue collar jobs, but AI is coming for white collar jobs. They're coming for creative jobs. They're coming for uh, writing jobs, legal jobs, mm-hmm. medical jobs, all these industries that have seen themselves as safe. And so the real question is, you know, people say, well, it'll result in lower price, better quality products and services. Sure, if people have a job and income to buy those, but if 100 million people get crushed and lose their jobs and they have no income, where's the money to buy that? And what's going to be the implication if we have within the space of a few years, all these people out of work for society? That's not a productive society. It actually creates a lot of social problems when people don't have work. So where are the new jobs going to come from? That's what I ask. And non-disruptive creation by creating without destroying, without displacing jobs allows me to create new jobs without taking away further. If I disrupt, I also create growth, but in the short and medium term, by releasing even more labor. So, Understood. you know, I'm going, please, but if you look at even self-driving cars, big disruption, but let me tell you, I think it's 3% of the American workforce. It's one of the highest occupations in America in many states are drivers of one sort, bus driver, tractor, a taxi driver, truck driver, 
So it comes and disrupts, eventually creates new jobs. But what about in the interim of all those jobs displaced? Where are they going to get absorbed to? So, you know, we see that I think it'll be really important at the level of community, at the level of government, to start trying to think about and inspiring people to think not only disruption and not only aiming AI at efficiency and productivity, because technology is a means to an end, but can I aim it at and start thinking about the value space of non-disruptive so I'm also creating new jobs with it? And that, I think, is going to be a big challenge um, and why it's important for the future. So. And just one one thought on that, because even in even in a non-disruptive creation of a of a new industry, some of the jobs, uh, just to make sure I understand, some of the jobs in that new industry will still be displaced, but ultimately at least the entire industry is not displacing jobs in another industry. So there will be it'll be mitigate some of the effects of emerging AI technology replacing white collar and whatnot. Okay. Yeah. So what it'll allow us to do, um, Scott, is to hopefully create new industries, new markets, new products and services that require new people to come on board. And you're right. Some of those jobs that come on board will be able to be used by AI to be efficient, but also creating all these new jobs. But what it's not going to do, though, is start to displace people in existing jobs mm, and existing industries. So it allows us as human resources and, and human beings are released from some jobs, it creates new opportunities to absorb new jobs. Um, and so that's what we see. Yeah. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, HubSpot. Now, as you all know, the Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot podcast network. There are incredible podcasts in this network. One of my favorites that you have to check out if you don't know this podcast, you're kind of sleeping on it, the Gold Digger podcast hosted by Jenna Kutcher. This podcast has been around for a minute. Jenna is an OG in the podcast game. The Gold Digger podcast helps you discover your dream career with productivity tips, social strategies, business hacks, inspirational stories, interviews, and so much more. Please go check out the Gold Digger podcast hosted by Jenna Kutcher wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so a lot of this conversation has spoken about uh, an entrepreneur that's thinking about building something from scratch, but there's also the opportunity for people within organizations to adopt yes. a more non-disruptive mindset. So how do we how do we foster that culture of non-disruption? Mm -hmm. Because I, I I don't think that even in a legacy organization, I mean even even getting a legacy organization to disrupt is like a hard enough thing to do. So how do we get them over that hump all the way through to, okay, just be forward thinking, be non-disruptive, create in this lens. How does a company do that? Somebody's listening to this VP, C-suite mm -hmm. at a fortune 1000. What do they yeah. take away? I think the first thing I want to take away is to start a discussion on it to ask people to think about this idea and whether it makes sense to their organization. You know, the one thing that you find is that when you ask, you know, and this is where the theory of disruption has been, you ask an established company to disrupt themselves. First of all, if you ask them to disrupt an existing industry, they understand that they're going up against big players with big resources. They know it's not an easy win, but the alternative is they often say, you know, disrupt your own industry before someone else does. Mm -hmm. But no one wants to disrupt their own industry because the second I tell myself 
disrupt myself, what happens to me as an organization? Actually, I, I fill myself with fear because what I'm saying is make myself irrelevant in a sense. So first thing is that so you have to understand within an established organization, disruption is harder to, uh, in many respects, from our perspective, it's harder to absorb because I think it's politically and emotionally uh, difficult for organizations to overcome that. Um, and so there's often a lot of pushback. You know, we have a, a quote in our book from an oil executive that, you know, saying that, you know, when you have three quarters of your organization focused on fossil fuels and you have these existing new issue industries that are green energy trying to displace and destroy this, we're not too excited about putting out our livelihoods here. So we find ways to slap overhead on the new industry, the new businesses and, you know, um, make it difficult. And so people want to jump shit from there. And so, so let me just say that, but I think very importantly, we say to organizations, you know, we all need to innovate. No one is going to deny that innovation. If there's one constant in the future is we need to innovate to stay ahead, especially with global competition intense. And especially today with people being concerned with the recession on the horizon or maybe being felt now everyone has different perspectives, but it's difficult right now. Mm -hmm. No doubt it's difficult. And it's going to be difficult for the next few years, especially if we have deglobalization and cost structures rise because of that. And so the question is, people are going to be tight with their money. So if less you're innovating in the marketplace and doing something special, you can expect your demand to, sh to shrink. Mm -hmm. So we need innovation. Now, there's two different types of innovation. I can disrupt and displace or I can also pursue these non-disruptive opportunities where I look for growth and, um, and innovation outside of my industry, but it doesn't have to be far outside, right? So when uh, video game makers created esports and jumped onto it and created their own teams and, and their own um, they adapted to multi-game players, they created a non-disruptive industry, but it was right next to their industry. So to simplify, Scott, you can have both. Disruption isn't that easy for a lot of established companies, but we found non-disruptive a bit more because I'm not displacing myself. I'm looking for new opportunities. And the first step is I need to have a discussion. What is this? Does it make sense? Do we need to innovate? And should we pursue disruption? Or maybe some of our units should because mm -hmm. those industries are asleep at the wheel. And maybe there are these industries where we see we really can see existing problems that have been unaddressed that we can, or newly emerging ones, we can do some non-disruptive. And I'd want to have that discussion. And I think that's the first thing I'd really want to do. And then, you know, if I want to take it further, I'd start to ask my team, all right, these are the two paths, you know, an existing problem we've taken for granted that people are really struggling with. I want you to go, give me two weeks, go think about that. One team of my people and another team, newly emerging problem or opportunity we could create. And let's come back in three weeks, knowing these two, and let's brainstorm what ideas we have and how can we start thinking about that. And that would be the way I would start a conversation. So I start to open people's mental space to that. Yeah. You know, I, when I was doing research for this, I saw a paper that you put out for the Harvard Business uh, Review about value innovation. Mm -hmm. Was this was value innovation the first iteration of this concept? 
that just evolved? So value innovation, so our research is a 30-year journey. You I know, realize it's like 2004. I was, I, I was surprised it wasn't some, 2014. It seems like this has been an emerging concept for a while. Well, value innovation was actually, it became a classic, so it was republished. Value innovation was actually first published um, in 1997. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So we have, and it, we had a series of best-selling Harvard Business Review articles, and then they um, asked Harvard and a few publishers asked us for about five years to write a book. We said, no, we have nothing really simple and important, we believe, to say that can make a real difference to business. And then we took five more years, and then we eventually came out with our first book, Blue Ocean Strategy. And we got pushed back because competing is everything. Yeah. And we said, we're not... We're not challenging competing. We're just saying there's competing and there's this non-disruptive opportunity called creating. Let's look <laughs> at it. And then, you know, we did that, it grew, and then we started to see all this disruption. And we say, why do we why are we always playing a zero-sum game? I mean, do you know where the zero-sum game comes from? Scott? I don't actually know. What what's the, I know the I know what it is, but I don't know where the, the strategy origin. and business fundamentally comes from more. It comes from military strategy. Interesting. And the key defining factor of military strategy, is there's only so much land. So for me to advance and gain more territory, I have to do it at your expense. Because there's the amount of land that exists on this beautiful earth is limited. So my win must come at your loss. Hmm. But when we took, so that's why we use chief executive officers, frontline staff, right? We use all these still military terminology in companies without understand, realizing it. And when military strategy moved into business strategy, innovation, infiltrated all of business, we took with it the key limiting factor, which is that limited land that you have to have zero sum game. When in business, the only limitation is our imagination. The amount of industries have exploded over time. And so we said, why do we accept that key limiting factor of war in a space that has no such limitation? We can, our limitations, our imagination, all these industries, if you look at the industry classification systems done by governments, they have exploded over time in an exponential way. And so we said, why should we play that zero sum game when we can play a positive sum game and keep growing that pie for all of us and make it better as opposed to only fighting. And so, but yeah, it seems we keep, back. I was going to say, we keep defaulting to this though, because even though blue ocean is a very widely recognized concept, then disruption again, turns into a zero sum game. So yes, it seems it to be the comfortable place that humans always go back to. Well, that is true. I think to a lot of extent as well, well, certainly, so I would say, yeah, I was going to say a certain type, but I would say, yes, I think a lot of people find that they're looking um, for that. You know, growth and comfort don't really coexist. You want to get more muscles, you have to strain yourself. You have to hurt, right? Every time we grow, we have to step into discomfort um, to expand that. So there is some of that. There's also just history is far, far longer, right? Mm -hmm. um, going all the way back. Um, Sun Tzu, in, a, in an interesting way, he always taught the best way to win a war is not to enter the war. Um, but you're right about that. Um, it is a high default. Um, but, you know, we will start keep charging forward in our way because we see that it is possible. We can, you know, decodify that. And I think organizations can get a lot better. And just because something is 
doesn't mean I, I um, fully agree. That it should be. And <laughs> we're going to keep marching forward. So, Scott, I hope you'll march forward with us on that. You know? I will definitely. And you're right. History is long. History is very long. History is long. History yeah. is long. And there's a lot to learn from it. And, you know, let me say another thing, Scott, to clarify. You know, competing has its role as is creating. They both do. Unfortunately, business is no longer monotone. We have to manage paradoxes. We have to be good short term and we have to think long term. We have to understand how to disrupt as well. Disruption matters, but also we have to understand non-disruptive opportunities. So it's more challenging in that sense, but to not accept that reality is to sort of bury our head in the sand and hope that our body doesn't get hit. And I just think that we need to be open to it. And, um, you know, we've saw when we started looking at non-disruptive, we started just thinking about it. And, you know, I said, really, wow. Think about it. Business books, our own category. It was a non-disruptive opportunity in the whole book industry. Didn't displace any other category when it was born. It really started with In Search of Excellence. Really, that was the first real big business book. Before that, there really weren't business books. Wow. But didn't displace, and no one stopped reading literature more, whatever. It just allowed us to learn about business. Then I look at teens. You know, they have a whole new category of teen books. Never existed before. Didn't displace just engage teens by talking books that talk about their issues. Wow, whole new category, you know? And then I have dogs and my little daughter would say, mom, can we get this pet Halloween costume? Wouldn't Lucy look cute as Paco? <laughs> wow, pet Halloween costumes never existed before, didn't displace, that's a $500 million industry. And the more we started thinking about it and looking at it, look at these industry after industry, when you have that lens and you start to see it, you start to pay attention to it and we start to realize how much more prevalent and how much money and opportunity and impact we can have in that space if we bring it to our consciousness. You know, it's just like the first time you hear a new word, you never mm -hmm. heard that word, and then suddenly you're at a party and you hear it. Eufy is sponsoring today's video. They reached out to me. I tested out their video lock. It is a game changer. I'm gonna paint a picture for you for why I'm so excited to work with them. So. You're getting home, your arms are loaded with groceries or packages or boxes or everything and your keys are in your pocket. This drives me nuts. This happens all the time. I upgraded to the Eufy Video Lock, fingerprint, tap, I'm inside. And honestly, I also feel way safer. It's got this awesome built-in camera. So whether it's a package delivery or late night Uber order, I see exactly who's there right from my phone. There are no more mystery knocks. And the best part, this thing was such a breeze to set up. There's no wires, there's no drilling. Uh, there's also no monthly subscription fees. So if you are done fumbling with your keys, because I definitely am, search for Eufy Video Lock or head over to eufyofficial.com slash video lock. Your front door, your sanity, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you so much indeed for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform 
with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're going to ditch the busy work, and you're going to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. And then you go somewhere and then you read an article, oh my God, there's that word. And you thought no one ever used this archaic word and you start popping up because now your mind is attuned to it. And I think that's what we're hoping the book will help to do. Get us attuned to non-disruptive opportunities and thinking more positive some as opposed to, and, and by the way, it creates a lot more hope than just, uh, disruption is also, um, and it's not an attack, but it's a fear-based way. If I tell you I'm going to disrupt you, Scott, oh, believe me, you don't like me right away. Yeah. yeah. And you're, you're in an anxiety mode and an attack mode. And if, I, if you say to yourself, to your team, we're going to disrupt ourselves, oh boy, they're going to go home and say to their wife or to their husband, Scott wants to disrupt this, honey. I'm not sure in six months, what, what does that mean to my job? Yeah. You know, what's going to happen to me now, right? You know, and the other thing I want to say, um, Scott, is this AI thing. I think that a lot of people today, whether companies are talking about it with their staff or not, people are reading. AI is everywhere. They're, or their kids are trying it or they're trying it at night and they're saying, oh my God, with two prompts, like it can write an article for me. It, somebody did a test and they said, it was amazing. They said, write a story about a piece. I, I don't have it exact, so please forgive me, I'm inaccurate, but write a story about a piece of celery who falls in name Marty, who falls in love with um, a peanut. They move to France, they start a bakery, and then they have um, an almond, um, I don't know, an almond for a house or whatever. And they said, just write this story. Chat GBT goes, writes, mm. little Marty the celery was green and sweet, and he met this cute little guy. And it was so sweet, and I thought, my God, this could be a best-selling book. My daughter would think it's adorable, you know? Yeah. So people are, my point is, people see this and what it can do. And they're whether they're having that conversation or not, they're starting to think about their own job. Like, wow, what does that mean? And we all know companies are under stress. We see today people getting laid off again and again just for the economy right? And a lot in the IT and other sectors. So people are wondering. And so I think a really worthwhile conversation in a company is to realize technology is a means to an end. What do I do that technology? Do I aim it at efficiency and productivity? I'm going to lose employees, but I have another opportunity. If we start thinking together in our company, can we think about how could we leverage that to create non-disruptive opportunities where we can create growth and hopefully new jobs or ways we can transition in so that we can keep our valuable employees and grow. And I believe that's an important discussion to have. Um, and it's also an inspiring one as a lot of people, I think, are starting to wonder, 
And even if they're not wondering today, believe me, at the rate, if we project out where it's going, they're going to be worrying, thinking about it in six months or eight months or a year. What can we do of it? And I think it's better to think in advance and try to get ahead of the curve if we can than to get hit by it and kind of be in the valley of death. Yeah. And when we're filled with fear, trying to figure this out. So I would think like that, you know. What's what's the next book you hope you'll be able to write? <laughs> Scott, you're killing me now. You're killing me no, now. No, no, you know? That is a very complex for a researcher. You're like growing gray hairs as I ask that question because it's so so no, damn stressful. No, no. Just, it's just asking a woman, you know, that just had a child. When's the next one? She's like, oh please, you know, I'm just barely surviving getting out. Um, you know, we're gonna listen really carefully as we talk to people. And we find out. What are their challenges, right? So we had, um, and where do they need more understanding? So you, I'll go back after our discussion, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, our books are a way to try to uh, share what we learned and what we've studied. But in a way, like when I'm interviewing you, you're my educator. I'm learning from you. I mm -hmm. hear what your concerns are, what your questions are. We will go back and we'll really start thinking about what really matters, where are areas that we could um, fill in um, to help organizations move. What are some of the hurdles or stumbling blocks they have in embracing this idea? And so we really interact with the market and with people and with um, businesses. Um, and we listen very carefully. So, you know, in, in our book, we talk about one thing is that, um, you know, what can trip you up on this path? And we say, you know, be be ready for discouragement from the pundits. Mm -hmm. Two things to say. You know, we have a few, but one of them is um, uh, be um, don't take others' assumptions as your own. It's very important. You know, people will tell you it's not the way it's done, but don't don't take that uh, others' assumptions because you know when we were studying uh, Sesame Street, you know, all the people in the education industry said. Little children cannot learn by watching. They have to learn by doing. You cannot have a silly puppet teach education. No kid will take it seriously. And also, you cannot mix fantasy and song with serious education. Kids need to be sitting down and be serious to learn. And she said, if we had ever listened, Joan Gans Cooney, to what the educator said about how education should be, Sesame Street would never be born, right? So one, you know, one problem is don't take others' assumptions as your own. Think for yourself. That goes back to my first point. You say, how did we create these ideas? Or you saw them as counterintuitive. We think for ourselves and we observe for ourselves, right? That's very important. A lot of people allow others to think for them. That's number one. Um, the second thing is, though, don't get ready for discouragement from the pundits. And when you're ready to be discouraged from the pundits, you actually get hit less when it happens because you're expecting it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you don't want to poo-poo it because you want to say, well, why did they have that? And if you have a good refutation for why it's irrelevant, you get strength in your ideas. But if you can't say, wow, we couldn't really speak to that. We don't really have a good answer for that. We don't know why our product won't work in that situation. It teaches you where you need to strengthen when your idea and when you're not as good. And so I say to you, that is what, when you say, what will our next book be? We are going to be passionate about what we do and marching forward. We're not discouraged by the pundits because we've seen what it is, but we're also going to learn from the pundits and we're going to make sure we're going to say, wow, what couldn't we have answered? 
what should we answer? How can we help people more? Because our idea isn't just to put a book out there. It's to try in a small way, a big way, maybe even a tiny way to try to make some difference. You know, my grandfather, he lived to over 100. And he gave me his most beautiful gift at the very end. And he said, Renee, I want to talk to you for a minute. And I said, yeah. And he goes, I've been thinking about it because he was bedridden, but he never lost his mind. And he said, if I had to think about, you know, what makes a good life? For me, it only comes down to two activities. And he said, that is to strive and to give. And he said, never stop striving to try to make a difference in this world, whether big or small, so it's better than when you came. Don't give up on that. And then he said, and never stop giving to those you love. And I, and I remember when I walked out of that room and I thought, I almost cheered up and I said, thank you. You have given me the best gift of my life. That was of all the gifts you gave me growing up, those two words, striving and giving. And so, um, good advice. It's very good advice. Yeah. Um, what would you, what would be one final lesson or one final question that I should have asked you that I didn't, that you think would be useful for somebody listening? Um, I think that if you're fortunate enough, you know, I went on this journey with my colleague, Chan Kim, for over 30 years. Um, and I think that we both, um, it's been really uh, rewarding and powerful for both of us along the journey, hence 30 years. And I think that we always look for um, and value and try to understand the value each of us brings to the table and uh, respect that. And I think doing that with your in an organization um, with your employees, and if you can have a really great to build a really strong team like that, I think that's indispensable um, because sometimes you have blind spots you don't see and they see them for you. They act as your eyes. Um, when you get um, when you know you get hit by something, um, they can uh, provide a different way to think about it. So I think building a strong team is very, very critical. And I know it's certainly benefited us in our journey. And um, I think building strong teams in our companies and with those we work with that are based on really a lot of mutual respect and alignment of values. So we're both very hardworking. Mm -hmm. um, we're both very, um, uh, you know, perfectionists in our own way. Um, we align in our viewpoint of what we're trying to achieve. We, as you know, when we achieve setbacks, we keep marching forward. Um, and that's very powerful, I think. So I would say in building a team to, to maybe take some actions like that. But other than that, Scott, I loved your questions and <laughs> I love your manner. Your, um, yeah, I love telling people because I just feel that. Thank you. We often think things and we don't articulate them, but you have such a, a, a winning way. I appreciate very that. Very kind. I try to ask real questions that I think your audience cares about, and I really respect that. Um, and you. so I thank you for that. I appreciate you a lot, and I actually really enjoyed the conversation a lot. This is right up my alley, and and I could I could probably do a much longer podcast than anyone else would listen to, just about all the topics we just went into. But um, before we close it out, 
uh, I want to give you the opportunity. Where should people go to connect with you? So the socials, the website, um, a little bit more about where they can get the book. Of course, all the regular spots, the Amazons and whatnot. But any links or anything else you want to drop? You know, what I would just say is um, our main link, which is uh, www.blueoceanstrategy.com. And from there, you know, our socials are there for the for our work. And, you know, um, they can also go to um, www.insead, which is our school, our university.edu, and they can find... You know, we have an institute there and they can find us there as well. But I would really say blueoceanstrategy.com can one stop shopping can direct them everywhere. And Perfect. yes, of course, you know, um, Amazon as well and the other usual suspects for the books. So. Perfect. Okay. And then the last question that I ask everyone uh, before we close this out, you've had an incredible career. Um, at this point in your life, what does success mean to you? Okay, so Scott, I didn't know you were going to ask that question. Um, no, no, that's fine. That's fine. You can take time to you can take time to think about it. It's not a trick. Yeah. It's just because it, you've achieved a lot, and I think that people's definition of success changes over time. And I'm curious what yours is now. Well, um, so I guess different spheres, but one is uh, for us, success in the way we uh, um, took our whole career was simply doing our best every day. That was what we were always trying to achieve, is just did we do our best today? Mm -hmm. um, that would be in work. And I think success um, in life is just knowing whether um, have I um, been a, a good partner to my researcher, Chen Kim, have I been a good daughter to my parents? Um, have I been a good sister to my brother? And have I been a good mother uh, to my daughter where I put things down when she comes in the room and I spend really valuable time with her? Um, have I been a good friend to my friends? And, uh, and I ask myself those questions often every morning over coffee, you know, before the day starts and, and the house is awake in the dark. I sit there and I, not that I achieve it, but I try to think consciously about that. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.